0: Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Franci, and I am your host, and I want to begin by saying thank you for listening. On this show, I am having conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some amazing and extraordinary results in both their life and business. My intention is to inspire and help you learn and grow by having my guests share their journey of how they face and overcome their challenges, but also how they celebrate their many wins. And now, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. My guest today, Tom Dunkel, spent his early career becoming an accomplished corporate finance leader. Through that part of his career, he drove over $1.2 billion of mid-market mergers and acquisitions as well as financing transactions But most importantly, he gained the experience and the track record as a trusted decision-making partner to C-level executives. He then went on to turn his entrepreneurial energy and enthusiasm toward building a self-storage investment business. His transactional experience, his financial savvy, and of course his leadership skills were what provided him the foundation to build an absolutely world-class organization focused on helping alternative investors build wealth while at the same time, improving communities. Listen in as Tom and I discuss his journey to honing and building his specialization of value-add self-storage investments, distressed mortgage note investing, and multifamily, along with self-storage properties. Without any further delays, let's get this show started. Tom Dunkel, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Good to meet you, man, and uh, welcome. Hey, Patrick. Thank you. It's great to be here. To you and the uh, listeners and viewers out there. So, you know, so Tom, you, we were talking a little bit off camera just before uh, that I live in beautiful British Columbia in Vancouver. Uh, you are in Philadelphia. That's right. Just outside
1: Philadelphia in a town called Wayne, uh, which is near uh, near Valley Forge for any of you uh, Revolutionary War history buffs out
0: there. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. I always want to start, you know, with getting listeners familiar with who i'm uh having a conversation with today so you know the opening question i generally go to is an easy one which is when somebody walks up and says so tom what do you do what's your answer these days Uh, i raise private money for self-storage uh
1: syndications in the eastern u.s so
0: self-storage was it always self-storage or did you morph into self-storage
1: yeah, self-storage is something that we found, uh, we initially started looking into it in the 2017, 2018 timeframe. Uh, we had some other businesses and kind of a serial entrepreneur and, and we really liked what we saw, but we also knew that we didn't have uh, all the skills that we needed on our team to be successful in that area. So over the next uh, couple of years, we, we got educated, we learned as much as we could about the market and we also assembled an awesome team. I mean, we're, we've never set out to be the biggest uh, self storage player out there uh, but i'll put our team up against any other team out there uh, across across the uh, industry because I'm just really proud of of the team that we pulled together
0: well when it comes to self storage you know before I get into why you know when you talk about a team what what were some of the skills what is it about your team that they do that you're so proud of and excited about sure yeah, great
1: question so um my partner joe Dowzai, we've been we've been partners thirteen years we've uh, done a bunch of things in and around real estate. Uh, we're both kind of finance guys by background. He's more of finance and sales, like financial advisor kind of guy. I'm more like the spreadsheet nerd, uh, you know, underwriting, you know, formula guy. Um, so I used to do a lot of mergers and acquisitions and corporate finance, uh, work, uh, back in my corporate life. So that was all great. We could analyze the deal, you know, down to the penny, but uh, what we lacked was uh, the ability to go out and generate the leads that we needed uh, to acquire the the self storage facilities. Uh, so uh, through a, a self storage mastermind group that we're a part of, uh, we met a guy named Tim Kane, and that's his specialty. He's a lead generation expert. So we met Tim, we uh, got to know him personally. We did a couple deals together as you know, kind of JV partners. And then, uh, we brought him into the partnerships and now the three of us are, are the partners in Delrose storage group, uh, as of, uh, about a year ago, but we needed one more piece. Um, and I always say this to people, Patrick, who are in real estate, which is, you know what, at the end of the day, it's pretty easy to buy real estate. If you, if you pay cash, you pay the asking price and you close tomorrow, you're going to buy as much real estate as you, as you can, but then you've got to operate, right? You've got to execute. And so, you know, we talk about, you know, ideas are great, but execution is worshiped in our country, in our company. So, uh, we went out and we found, uh, a, a fantastic operations expert. Um, her name's Catherine East. She's been in the self-storage industry for 16 years. She used to be the executive director of the Missouri Self-Storage Association. She's done consulting and, uh, audit work at self-storage facilities around the country during that time. And so we were able to bring her in uh, as our operations consultant. And so we're just uh, really rocking and rolling as far as uh, running the facilities that we own. Uh, One small example uh, is that uh, the industry generally accepts about a 10% delinquency rate at a storage facility. Ours as of our KPI meeting this morning was 0.7% delinquency across our portfolios. That's just one little tidbit. There's plenty of others I'm happy to share during the show, but that having that operations team put together really gave us the confidence to go out and uh, really start growing, growing the business.
0: Let me unpack this a little bit, Tom, because, you know, you make some really interesting points in all of this, which is you brought a team of people together, a group of people that all had strengths. You know, they had specific strengths. Now, when you kind of step back from it now. And sometimes that's kind of, you know, accidental. So we go on this entrepreneurial journey and the next thing you know, it's, you know, we meet this right one person and then we meet another and it's kind of accidental. Was it, at what part was it intentional for you when you looked at, I've got the spreadsheets and that's, you know, I can do all the, you know, I can do all of that stuff. I got finance guy and together we can handle a lot of those things then when you stepped back from it, did you say, okay, so we got to orchestrate this and this is what we need. And then you came across, you, you know, your an other partner who became a, you know, great at finding deals, you know, that lead gen. Tell me a little bit about, was that a conscious thing that you go, gosh, we got to find somebody who can find deals. Like, was that a conscious thing for you guys? Ultimately it was, you could uh, see over
1: my shoulder here, the who not how book. I don't know yeah. if, uh, if that is familiar with you or your audience, but, uh, we've really adopted that philosophy, but we kind of found the book after we made the mistakes uh, in other businesses. So uh, as I mentioned, in, in the 13 years that Joe and I have been business partners, you know, we've done some other things in real estate in and around real estate. So one of them was um, uh, a hard money lending company. And so we started that business and uh, we failed. And then we started it again a couple of years later, and failed. And uh, so we learned from that that hey, you know, we we never quite had the right people um, on the team that could help us get the traction in that business. And so, so I think uh, Patrick, to answer your question, I think it ultimately became more on the front of our consciousness as far as being intentional and saying, hey, these are our strengths; these are things we're missing. And so, I think you know, we started going out to try to to fill those those holes in the, in the team. And I think um, it comes more so, I think, from an abundance mindset, right? Like we want to bring the right team together, and we want everyone to be compensated because we think we can go a lot farther together as a group, as opposed to you know going fast, right? I think there's an old uh, saying about that. We used to say that in uh, in Boy Scouts when we were going on uh, backpacking trips. You know, you want to go far, you go together. You want to go fast, you go by yourself. Yeah,
0: it's a you know, the book Who Not How. I think yeah, great book. I haven't read it it's been a while since I read it, but it really speaks to what you guys have developed. What I like about your story in this context is that I learned all my lessons the expensive way, you know, and I think that, you know, maybe that's the best way. Sometimes I tell myself that is, is that really we learn from our failures and you, your partner, you know, fell down, picked yourself up, dusted yourself off and moved forward with those lessons in place and put in those corrections and ultimately have developed a a great business model. Now, when we, and I want to spend a little time on this whole self-storage thing because I see it more and more that even in Canada, and I know in the US, and we have, you know, members of our rain community, the real estate investment network, who look at self-storage and who are actually going out of the country. And they're it's a multifamily as well, but they're also looking at self-storage opportunities. And there's some pretty creative stuff going on. And there was a project that I don't remember where it was, but it was actually a combination and very significant players of a giant car wash and self-storage and those two went together and they raised capital for it the, you know the rest is history but tell me about the self-storage I had a, I'll share a, a revelation I had this was a few years ago I went to a mall on a Sunday I had to pick something up and I'm looking in this mall and I don't normally go shopping I'm not that and and especially on a Sunday but I had to go I go and I'm seeing all these people shopping and I'm going wow this is what goes on on Sundays Everybody hangs out in shops and then on my way home i had to stop at our local home depot or whatever it was and i walk in there and down on the center aisle was this sale of storage bins that were like stacked to the ceilings and i went oh isn't that ironic that i go to this mall and there's people buying stuff and then and then all they have to do is drive down the street and they can find a place to store it for cheap and then I went, okay, where are they gonna put those bins? Now I never went down the whole path of self-storage, but how did you get turned on to self-storage? I mean, the demand is, I think, gotta be huge. And now, you know, post pandemic and people working from home and they gotta create space or they're gonna buy more stuff. What's your experience with it?
1: Yeah, uh, Patrick, we're we're super excited about the self-storage industry. Um, and you just hit on one of the key factors, which is you know, during, uh, during the COVID, uh, era, the lockdowns there, you know, all of a sudden folks had to turn their spare bedroom into an office. So they, they didn't want to, you know, get rid of or throw out their bedroom furniture. So they, uh, put it in storage. Um, and that's just one example. Uh, there's plenty of other examples that, that are driving demand. Uh, you know, one, unfortunately is divorce, uh, you know, downsizing, uh, this, any kind of displacement, uh, but you know, really it's a lot of demographic trends are causing people to, uh, just need to sto- ha- store their stuff uh, in good times uh people are buying 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 like you just mentioned uh, they're at the malls and and you know we're a very uh consumer centric society and you know people are always buying stuff I mean if I pick up my st- smartphone right now i with a few touches on my phone from amazon I could you know buy pretty much anything Anything <laughs> you want yeah. yeah 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 so uh you know in good times people are, are doing that and you know they're not the $200 a month, you know, storage unit on their budget, you know, it hits their credit card statement, you know, it's, it doesn't really register on the, on the needle. And we we put uh, folks on auto pay. So it becomes like a, a Planet Fitness membership where it becomes more of a hassle to cancel it yeah. than it does to just suck it up and continue going on with it. And that's at the end of the day, you got to move that shit out of there. So right. exactly the and, and we're, what are you going to do? You going to go there, empty it out, yeah. you know, throw it, you know, the back of your buddy's uh, pickup truck. And then what, go down the street and put it in the other storage facility and uh, try to save, you know, whatever, 10, 20 bucks a month, you know, it just doesn't happen. So it's very, very sticky in that regard. But in bad times, Patrick, of course, you know, unfortunately, you know, people are lo- may lose a home or they, you know, they they have to move out of a home into an apartment. You know, there's all those kinds of dynamics going on. People move in together. I don't know if it's the same with Canadians, but we Americans we love our stuff. So instead of throwing it out or getting rid of it, which is frankly what I would do.
0: <laughs>
1: big irony here is I don't I don't intend to ever have a self storage unit, even though I'm in the business. But, you know, these people rely on, uh, you know, being able to have that that extra uh, space to put their stuff. And, and uh, you know, a lot of the uh, older housing stock, uh, you have small closets, you know, maybe not even an attic, uh, you know, de- depending on what part of the country we're in. They don't have basements, uh, but they still like their stuff. You know, they want their, you know, holiday holiday decorations, bicycles, kayaks, uh, extra bedroom furniture, you know, stuff for their kids, stuff for their grandkids that they're saving, et cetera. And you know, so they just hold on to it.
0: Well, you know, you look at it at you know, the end of the day. I know in the better climates, you you know, the indication is is that in the better climates, like here in Vancouver area, we don't really get a ton of snow and sometimes not no no snow at all. But nobody parks their car in the garage. They don't have room. You know, there's their their garage is full at the end of the day. And we see that in better climates often. Yeah, and, right. So I have some experience and some insights into self-storage, not a lot, because of course I'm more into know, residential or commercial real estate and tenants and all the things that go along with that. This is a different world. So what sets you apart? So when I look at self storage, is it really boiled down to marketing? You know, like how do you keep those units? Is it just a marketing gig? Make sure your property looks good, make sure it's secure, Uh, lighting, I'm sure all those kinds of things. Give me a little insight into what is your, you know, what's your secret sauce if there is one or what's your kind of niche that sets you apart, perhaps from some other self-storage units that are in the area?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, there there was a, a lot in that question, but uh, I, I, I guess I'll start with marketing, which is something you touched on. The vast majority of storage facilities out there are not owned by the, the names that you've heard of, uh, public storage, extra space, cube smart. The fact is that over 60%, close to 70% of the market out there is still run and owned by moms and pops. They're onesie twosie, uh, facility owners, and they don't really run it like a business, uh, it's more of a kind of a a side hustle or it's like the mailbox money. A lot of them have other jobs. Uh, so for example, we're about to acquire a facility, um, in New York state. The gentleman who is the owner, who was the original builder of the facility is 83 years old. Uh, His daughter runs the facility uh, so that he can pay her a nice little salary, and he spends most of his time in Florida and at the golf course. He knows his rates are under market, but he doesn't want to go through uh, the effort of marketing his storage units. He knows most of his uh, customers, so he doesn't want to piss them off by pushing up the rates. And at the end of the day, he tells, he flat out told us, he's like, I'm happy with the amount of money I'm making each month. And I don't want to, you know, go through the agony of, of pushing up the rates. So he's like, I'll, I'll leave that up to you guys. So you'd be surprised how often we hear this same story, Patrick, in the, in the facilities that we're finding. And those are the ones that we're targeting are the onesie twosie mom and pop loan facilities. This particular one in New York is 34% under market rates. Wow. The the one we're about to acquire in Kentucky, 39% under market rates. So we don't have to be like rocket scientists and you know, we're not splitting atoms here. All we're doing is going in, doing some marketing, making sure that we're on the first page of Google, uh, and we're using whatever other marketing, uh, tactics we can and that's where our operations expert comes in she's excellent at the the marketing and and getting the search engine optimization up there and then at the end of the day too we have the technology in place where someone can just tap a few buttons
0: on their smartphone and rent a unit so tell me something when you're looking at those deals by the way you know if you're going in you're 39% under market rates are you then buying that property going in bringing the NOI back up and then going refinancing pulling Capital off investor capital off repaying some of the to your investors or putting it back into the property, whatever that case may be, is that the basic concept? And you would, and if you want to expand on that, please do.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, so part one of that was accurate. Part two, I'll, I'll adjust uh, for our discussion here. But uh, yeah, part one is that we do go in and we do we do push raise. Uh, we're not doing it like on day one because obviously you know, we're going to create a certain amount of turnover in the customer base and we're okay with that, but we do it in phases so that it's, it's manageable and that our, our property manager isn't getting inundated with, uh, hate calls, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, right out of the gates. So we do phase it over time, but what we do then is, you know, I I've, I've heard of people, especially in the residential side of, you know, getting the rents up and then they get the value of the property up and they do a refi and payback that's in, in Theory in commercial real estate, that's, that sounds great. In practice, I found that that's really challenging to do that. Lenders do not want you to cash that out and go do something else with it. They want you to stay, uh, engaged with the property. So, uh, we found that that strategy, uh, it sounds great. I love how it sounds, but actually in implementing that is, can be very challenging. Uh, cause a lot of times what a lender will say is, well, you bought it for X and even though now it justifies a two X valuation, you know, we're still going to only lend to you based on the original X. So interesting. It, yes, we've, we've run into that. So what, what we end up doing is more of a, a velocity model. We call it Patrick, where we create a lot of value quickly. And at that point, you know, that return curve starts to bend and plateau and flatten out. And that's when we look at exiting the property. And then the idea is that we take that return that we've created and we compound that into the next deal. And, you know, thankfully, you know, we're very grateful for our investors who put their trust in us and they, and they do go along with that strategy. So they'll come into their first deal. We'll exit that deal They'll take. They might take a couple of dollars off the table, but then they're going to reinvest a larger amount into the next deal. And a lot of our investors actually end up bringing uh, their friends and family in too. So we're very grateful for that.
0: So this is interesting. So now do you have a generally, I'm sure it goes by project or property base. but are you in and out in five years or less? Or what's your kind of what's your time frame generally on this song?
1: On a straightforward value add deal. In other words, there's no big construction or, or expansion project associated with it. We're about two years, maybe three, where he, the facility I mentioned in New York does have an expansion opportunity available. So because of that construction and lease up time, that's going to be necessary, that'll be more like a four to five year.
0: Yeah. So interesting model. I love it. So would take me back a little bit though, but here we find ourselves, Tom, you, you had some kind of challenges in your business life, but take me back a little bit, you know, you're here today, but. You weren't always here. So take me back a few years and tell me a little bit about your background in business or how did you, because you had a corporate background and you then had, so you had a JOB, and now you're kind of going, I'm an entrepreneur. When did that all start to happen and start to unfold for you? Here, let's see.
1: Uh, let's see. Uh, well, I was born in 1968. now no, I won't go back that far. But uh, so, yeah, I was, uh, you know, college, you know, business school got out of business school. I really did want to go into commercial real estate at that time, but the the market was cruddy. So I ended up, um, going into, uh, corporate life and, uh, was, uh, lucky enough to find a position with, uh, with a really exciting company in the aerospace industry. Um, so we were growing aggressively through acquisitions and raising a bunch of money and institutional debt and institutional, uh, private equity companies. So I got kind of a real frontline view into that whole world. And uh just had some amazing uh mentors. Uh the CEO of the company was a Harvard MBA, Harvard undergrad, first Boston investment banking guy, uh hockey player. You might, you might like batter. <laughs> and uh so he was great and he surrounded himself with some equally great people. Uh one of my bosses, I had actually, we had a sort of sort of a matrix set up. So I had two bosses and the one guy was uh U S Naval Academy graduate. He was a gold glove boxer there, uh, did his tour in the Marines and then went to, uh, the university of Pennsylvania Wharton school for his MBA. Uh, so he was great to learn from, uh, we had ex, uh, you know, fighter pilots and, uh, air force, uh, colonels and all these great people in the leadership team at that company. So I learned a lot of great stuff from, from that, uh, that group, which was, which really gave me a, a great foundation. Uh, but ultimately I went to to a few other jobs from there, but I'd always just had uh, something in my gut telling me, you know, that, Hey, you know, that I need to go out and do something, do something on my own. And I knew Patrick, um, there is a specific moment when I knew that I was either certifiably insane or I really was an entrepreneur and I needed to let that, uh, you know, let that loose and grow. Um, And that was the moment um, after I was fired uh, from my corporate job as a, as a VP at a publicly traded company, I was looking for some entrepreneurial things to do because I had set aside some money and I was wanting to do something on my own, but I thought, well, you know, I've got young kids at home. Let me uh, go interview, check out some jobs, see what's out there. So a headhunter set me up with an interview at a, a company that was a spinoff of uh, DuPont chemical. And it was this fibers company that was growing through acquisition global and was like pre IPO and just, I mean, yeah, you know, basically like an unlimited budget. I and mean, they, they just, if you looked at me on paper at that time and you looked at that job, you would be like, this is the perfect job for Tom Dunkel, but. As I'm sitting in the interview, across the table from the the guy who would be my boss, I heard a voice in the back of my head saying, "Don't do it, don't do it." And so, as yeah, I knew it was one of those things where I knew the interview was going well, but I heard that voice. I leave the interview. I go home. I call the recruiter, and I tell him. I say, "Hey." I'm sorry to do this to you, but I need you to pull my name from from consideration because I, I I just I need to go do something on my own. And he says, you know you're their guy, right? And I said, Yeah, I figured I was. So this was big salary, big options, big bonuses, all that. And uh, like I said, on paper, just a great job for me, but I just I just couldn't do it.
0: So that fork in the road moment, and it's interesting, those forks on the road, you know, uh, I've had entrepreneurial accidents, so I don't, you're not really forks in the road. Like I call them entrepreneurial accidents. Maybe they were folks in the road, but it wasn't like a decision to go left or right. It was just, this is in front of me. This looks cool. And you know, that works out. How old were you when you had that fork in the road moment, Tom? I was, uh, 38. Now question, why'd you get fired from the other job? You know, it's funny. I,
1: when I was interviewing for that job, so this is, uh, as might be familiar with Nutrisystem, it's the, the weight yeah. loss, you know, food company. So so Nutrisystem had been acquired by a management team and they were looking to grow through acquisition. And so I was interviewing with the CFO. He was telling me about the, the role and the position and what, you know, what it would entail, et cetera. And he wanted me to do a lot of, uh, like kind of internal. Um, analysis and, you know, analyze like the, the, the marketing, all this stuff that really wasn't up my alley. And I, and I told him in the interview, I said, I don't think I'm the right guy for this job. He's like, no, no, no. I think you're, I think you're the right guy. I think you'll fit in great. No, I'm like, I don't think so. And (laughs) And, but he's kept, he threw more money at me, more stock options. So I was like, okay, I'll give it a try. And I lasted a year and, uh, I, you know, I knew. I knew that it wasn't a good fit. And, uh, so when I did, uh, get fired, it wasn't a huge surprise to me. So I had, again, I had been, you know, kind of squirreling away set some money.
0: Up, yeah. But you've been set up for the expectation and then you didn't meet the expectation that you knew that you weren't really set up for anyways. It's always, I always look at those moments, right? So I'm, uh, the reason I ask is to, you know, say, what was the lesson in that for you? And then of course, I'm sure that hit home when you were actually the fork in the road moment where you're looking at it and now having had that experience of working in an environment that you weren't excited about or doing something that you knew you weren't maybe good at and setting yourself up to failure. Who knows? Yeah. But that all sets you up for that decision. It, and I'll just, I'll share as long as we're, you know,
1: being totally transparent, I'll even share something else that was really embarrassing about that. I get a phone call one day while I'm at System in my office working away. And it's an old friend of mine. I hadn't talked to him in quite some time. And, uh, he's a recruiter and he's calling me up and saying, Hey, you're working at Nutrisystem. I said, yeah, he's like, yeah. So I've got this, uh, job I'm looking to fill at Nutrisystem and he starts going down the job description and I'm like,
0: <laughs> this is my job. job. <laughs>
1: this is my job. That's hilarious. And so I'm on the phone with him. Like I'm probably like I am right now. I'm like getting red in the face. Like what the hell? So I, you know, I didn't let on to anything that I that, that I knew, but I did go into my boss in the CFO and uh I said, uh, hey Jim, um that kind of a kind of a you know, we had our typical like catch-up meeting and I said at the end, uh, I said, Hey, I got a little bit of a uh you know, a little bit of a knuckleball for you. It's not a curveball. <laughs> it's kind of a knuckleball. I said, so my friend called me. Sounds like he's looking to fill my job. Is that what's going on? And he, you know, pretty much you know, said, yeah, we're looking to replace you. I was like, well, yeah, but I've been doing ABC, XYZ. We've got these reports going like this. blah blah blah." So I did make an argument as to why I should stay, but I knew, I knew ultimately it wasn't going to work out. So he eventually did find somebody and that's when I got canned. I wouldn't change it for the world.
0: Yeah. It's <laughs> of, no, interesting. But tell me, I want to go you know, a little bit into just because of a couple things that you've said along the way here, you know, number one was, you know, you kind of use that embarrassing moment thing, but you know, you spoke of a couple failures that you've had in business. Tell me about from your experience, because, you know, as a coach myself, you know, I'm often speaking to people and we're asking them, you know, what's in your way and what's your biggest fear? And people say, you know, the biggest fear is failure. Now I have a fundamental philosophy around that or belief which is that we're not afraid of failure we're afraid of the judgment of our not achieving that outcome or whatever it might be and and it's really i mean i think about how many times i failed and i've, I've lost count but ultimately it's more about the judgment which i'm no longer really attached to i don't think in terms of what that might look like you know what you didn't do it you know it's like okay well Yeah. So I tried. (laughs) So that's, you know, I went in full, you know, full on. But what was it? What is it for you? What did you learn in your kind of, you know, being fired, losing that job, making a different decision, you know, having a partner where you guys didn't make, make it happen a couple of times. What was, what's your kind of your own philosophy or your own insights into failure, Tom? Yeah, that's a good question, Patrick. I think, um, entrepreneurs
1: are wired a little differently where, um, you know, they look at failure as a learning experience and, and they don't internalize it. Uh, I don't feel like I ever really did. I mean, obviously I had days when, you know, I felt really bad and I was letting my family down and I was letting myself down. Um, but I think ultimately, you know, entrepreneurs have, have grit. It's something it's hard to measure. Um, I mean, I'm, you know, far from, uh, the smartest guy on the planet. I think I've got some decent skills here and there, but, um, I think, you know, there are plenty of smart people out there who don't reach their full potential because they're not, you know, they are so invested in themselves being that smart and being that, you know, you know, great. And, and that, you know, uh, the level of achievement maybe that they've gotten through kind of the quote unquote normal channels, I think. Uh, it's hard to let that go. I, have, I, I, have a friend that comes to mind right now. He's, he has a great entrepreneurial mind, but he's a CFO at a publicly trained, company, and he's got the golden handcuffs and I, I kind of feel bad for him. I feel like he hasn't really had a chance to go out and really see what he can do. And so I, I think for me going through those failures, of course, it was painful, but it was a learning experience And I think if you can use failure. As learning and as fuel, uh, so you don't screw it up again. You know, I, I think that's really important for for entrepreneurs and uh, for really anybody that's trying to grow personally and professionally. I mean, you have to put yourself out there. You know, almost by definition, right? To get better at something, you when you first start, you're gonna suck, right? So you're gonna suck. You have to realize that, love it, embrace it, and then just get better, and try to surround yourself, kind of like the who, not how, you know, just surround yourself with the people who are better at the things that, that maybe you're not so good at. And so that together you can, you can grow together as a team.
0: Yeah. And I love that thought process, you know, which is to use that failure, that setback, whatever that might be as, as fuel, you know, you really do need to do that. And also the interesting point that you make your friend, the CFO, you know, I, I think now that you've been through it, you've had those jobs. I haven't had a job for 38 years. So like I've been an entrepreneur for that long. And that just is a statement of me being an old guy. But at the end of the day, you know, I've also seen those people that have the gold handcuffs, they feel secure. They're, you know, they're going to get their pension. Maybe they're going to get an index pension and all looks good, but I'm going, man, but they hate their life. They hate their jobs. They just grind it out and they go, I don't know, you know, I'm challenged as an entrepreneur, but I don't feel like I'm grinding it out every day doing something i don't love to do so it's an interesting you know i guess it's an interesting take that people have to get and go you know something life's too short to be grinding it out you know i'll take my chances and be happy rather than sharing it out and be miserable so it's just an interesting way to go with it we talked a little bit uh beforehand but was did you come into being an entrepreneur Uh, You went to school, you went to university for business. Was there an entrepreneurial thread in there somewhere along the way? Did you have a, you know, with your parents or your uncle or something along that line that you admired that you went, you know, maybe one day I'll do that. Was it ever there for you? Or did you just literally fall into the entrepreneurial world by accident?
1: Yeah. um, Yeah. Good question. Uh, I would say on the, on the one hand, I probably had the worst possible upbringing to be an entrepreneur. And the reason I say that is because I had two loving parents, grew up in a upper middle class household, never wanted for anything, uh, you know, did the vacations, went to the good schools, Yeah, lived in a nice house. And the reason I say that was a a horrible way to grow up as an entrepreneur is because the entrepreneurs that I've met, they've been through some shit, right? And so here I come out of this kind of cushy lifestyle. And so when I first, when I got fired and I went into uh, real estate in 2006, by the way, we haven't talked about this yet. (laughs) Uh, you know, I'm thinking, Hey, I've got, I've had this great background, you know, the Harvard guys, Wharton guys, you know, Chicago got all these great people that have mentored me. I've I've got this great experience with these public companies. I've got all this deal experience. Uh, I'm just going to go out and it's going to be a cakewalk, right? So I go into residential real estate, I'm doing wholesaling. I'm doing fix and flips. I'm picking up rentals, you know, all that sort of thing. And then of course the world goes to hell, 2008, 2009, 2010, et cetera. So that was my time where I really had to get thick skin real quick. And I wasn't really prepared for it at first. Um, So I wasn't around the right people. I was, I didn't have a business partner. I know there's probably some people out there who maybe they do well, work well by themselves. I found, of course, in hindsight that um, I I actually do like to have people around to bounce ideas off of. I didn't have that kind of support system. And meanwhile, you know, I've got money going out the door. I'm spending $20,000 a month on marketing. I've got, you know, I've got staff, I've got rent, I've got this, I've got that. And, you know, the cash is just dwindling. And so ultimately, you know, had to, you know, shut down that business. And that was by 2009. And that's when I really had to like, have the gut check, like, okay. So should I go back to corporate America because I just lost a million dollars of my own money <laughs> and I'm starting over again. And so. That was kind of a gut check moment. And I guess another moment when I did realize that I was either certifiably insane or an entrepreneur.
0: (laughs) So you've decided that you're both certifiably insane and- I could be both. That's right. They're not mutually exclusive. (laughs) That's funny. So now when you look at your business that you've got and that you, you know, a philosophy that you've developed, you know, you talk about, you know, who, not how, great book great philosophy. But when you look at what you're doing in the rental storage, it seems like, okay, how do you hold that in terms of being a contribution is when you look at your business, there's, you know, you're a contribution, I guess, to your investors. Well, not a guess, you are being a contribution to your investors. But what's, what's kind of the mission, if you will, of, of, of a self-storage business that you've developed? Sure.
1: No, that's a that's a great question, Patrick, and it's actually something we spent a lot of time on. Um, you know, we were putting the team together. Um, we really wanted to form a great foundation uh, upon which to grow our business, and part of that is, you know, what is our purpose? Why are, why are we doing what we're doing? So, actually, right here, you can't see it here; it's off camera. But I have a whole paragraph on my wall here that we've uh, developed and adopted as a company, uh, and I'll just paraphrase it because it's kind of long. But the, basically the purposes of of our company is to just be, is to just enrich, uh, all of our stakeholders internal and external, uh, with whatever, you know, knowledge we can provide. And of course, you know, financial returns that we can provide, not only in the form of, you know, salary and bonuses to our, to our employees, but we do have a profit sharing program and, you know, we're really in business to help people reach their growth goals, uh, their wealth goals. And uh, that's something, again, having worked for publicly traded companies, uh, I'm a little jaded about how they run because I don't really feel like they're very transparent with their investors. We try to go above and beyond and be transparent with our investors. Uh, as you can tell from the embarrassing stories I've been telling <laughs> today, you know, we try to do that same thing with our investors because we can strip away all of those question marks and concerns and and curiosities and Suspicions, you know, all that's left is trust. And so that's, that's what we try to get to. And so, um, we're actually in the process this year of, um, uh, really for our marketing to our investors is, is addressing head on those questions. Like first question is, are you going to steal my money? <laughs> sure. So we we're going to, we're going to have a whole, you know, advertisement and, you know, video compilation around, you know, why, you know, how we're, how and why we're not going to do that. And then, so it just kind of goes from there, you know, how do you make money? What are your fees? You know, these are all things that most people don't want to talk about, but we want to get it out there in the, in the public domain so that we can be held accountable and, and do what we say we're going to do.
0: It's always interesting with investors, isn't it? Is that you can spend whatever thousands of dollars on an OM, on an offering memorandum, you can put it on the table and you have to beg and plead for them to read it or send it to their lawyer. You know, I don't know what statistically what it is, but very few seem to want to take the time to actually read that om yet it's everything. it's all of the details and perhaps it's because it's legal ease and perhaps it's because it's sometimes challenging to understand that people don't do it or they don't want to spend you know two or three hundred bucks or four hundred bucks whatever mm-hmm. the number is for a lawyer to go through it and then you know read back to them what it all means. but isn't it interesting the psychology of that yet they're very concerned about what you're doing with their money, and you know it's all in writing. Ultimately, sure, yeah. We we joke and say that the offering memorandum
1: tells you all the reasons not to invest in this deal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, but ultimately, it's uh, it's good. You know, the investor should be reading that. Uh, but it's really protection for sponsors, so that sure, God forbid if the deal does go poorly, yeah. uh, we have those protections in place that we can go and and uh, you know still grow the business.
0: Now you uh, you go the route of an accredited investor in terms of, uh, I think you said an LCC. Why did you go that route, or did that evolve to that? Did you start out, you know, not that and, and then evolve into that? What's Give me a little bit of background around that Tom? Yeah, good question. So yeah, we, we started out like probably a lot
1: of uh, sponsors and uh, syndicators out there. Uh, we did start with our kind of immediate, you know, kind of friends and family friends. and sort of grew those concentric circles from there. But um, so we did have some uh, some non accredited uh, investors early on, uh, but as the business is growing and we need to cast a broader net out there to to get our um, our investors, we're we're forced now to go and do uh, sorry to throw out a fancy term, but of the five hundred six C, the Reg D five hundred six C offering, which is a general solicitation, so that way we can put our advertisements on you know Facebook and LinkedIn and what have you. Uh, but that forces us to to go for uh, accredited investors because only accredited investors can participate in a in a five zero six c. and I think ultimately it's it's better for everybody because if a, if a deal does go poorly, which you know knock on wood, we've never had a bad deal. and I can say that we've never had a deal go bad where someone has lost money in thirteen years. so I'm pretty proud of that. but you know, if something catastrophic did happen, you know, we like to feel like the accredited investor, you know, they're able to take that hit a little better uh, than maybe somebody who's investing their last $50,000 with us. And, I mean, that would be, that would be horrible. That would be a terrible outcome. Um, so that's kind of been the the evolution of that. And we do have aggressive growth goals. Uh, we're looking to acquire $150 million worth of self-storage over the next couple of years. Um, so we're going to need a lot of capital and we're going to quickly exhaust our friends and family. So we need, we need to cast that wider net for the uh, investors.
0: So, when you look at the operation of your business and what you've learned over the years, I mean, to do what you're doing and to have that conversation with investors to operationally and you know run the business and do what you're doing, you know, it takes some real leadership skills, and you know I'm always interested to hear from entrepreneurs or anybody actually in terms of leadership. You know, I you know you hear you know you hear the comment that they are born of you know, he or she was born a leader and and maybe there's a grain of truth in that and and but i believe that leadership comes from study and comes from very intentionally looking at you know how you're being as a leader and what it is you're trying to achieve and how you're trying to communicate but what is it for you because i've actually had guests who go no i don't really do any study on leadership i just do what i do now and they've been very successful doing it that way but what's your experience in that
1: tom Sure. Yeah. I think, uh, I think when I, uh, you know, lost my million dollars and had to kind of reinvent and figure things out. I think that was a time when I was like, Hey, you know, I got to get a lot smarter here. Um, you know, by that point, you know, I'd been way out of college, way out of business school. You know, I couldn't rely on the, on the quote unquote, you know, kind of institutional learning. I had to go out and get myself educated. So that is when I started, uh, you know, going to the leadership conferences. Uh, you know, listening to the you know the Jim Rohn uh, challenge to succeed uh, CD set like over and over and over again in my car. Yeah, you know, I'm a I'm a Darren Hardy fan. Uh, I'm a Joel Osteen fan. So I've I've been just listening to those voices uh, over the years, and um, and I just feel like uh, part of being a leader, and you know, and frankly taking on the responsibility of taking somebody's hard-earned money. I mean, I need to be educated and I need to be out, you know, learning things all the time. So I was just at a conference down in Miami this past weekend, uh, later on in, uh, in November, uh, we have our self-storage mastermind group where, uh, where I'm going to be making a presentation, but then I'm going to be hearing lots of presentations. So you know, just trying to stay out there and just keep in touch. You know, finger on the pulse. I think is is hugely important. And I think unfortunately, a lot of people rely too much, and and it's part of their identity. Is oh, well, I went to this great school. Okay, well, that was thirty years ago. <laughs> what have you done recently? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's it's something uh, constantly top of mind. In fact, it's uh, one of the. One of the things I I do as kind of a KPI for myself is to make sure I'm tracking. Okay, am I am I reading the industry publications? Am I, you know, reading the books? Am I listening to the podcasts? Am I doing those things to stay educated and just keep out in front? Because, like I said, you know, our investors they've got their own uh, priorities. They've got their own high profile jobs. These are accredited investors, right? They they've reached a certain level of achievement, and so they've got to focus on what they're doing. But for them to entrust me with their hard-earned money, I need to be focused on what the heck I'm doing.
0: There's uh only because you mentioned his name, uh, in terms of Dan Hardy. uh, uh, no, Darren, is it Darren or Dan? Darren Hardy. Darren, yeah. Yeah, you know, Darren Hardy. His stuff is really, really great. There's no doubt about it. He's, he's quite an inspirational, has done, has really achieved a lot of things. He has. D- does some really cool stuff. So, you know, I, I give a shout out because I think it's definitely worth a listen whenever you can get a chance to either read or listen yeah, to Darren course, uh I I have this on my desk. There's me and Darren
1: arty There you go. <laughs> awesome. the high performance forum yeah. back in uh 2014. So um yeah, I've been following him for for a long time, been to his events, and actually uh, one of the cool things that came out of that was um I have an accountability partner um that I met at that event and so we've been accountability partners for going on Geez, nine years. Wow. Um, and so every Tuesday today's Tuesday. I don't know what time. I don't know when this recording's going out, but today's Tuesday, eight o'clock this morning. I talked to my accountability partner, Stephen Wessner, and we've been doing it pretty much every Tuesday morning at 8 a.m. Uh, for, you know, going on nine years. <laughs>
0: wow. What does that look like? What is it, you know, we do a, a segment in within our community called The Breakfast Club. And within The Breakfast Club, we get together early morning. It's a one-hour meeting. That's a group session, and uh, we create a scene, and then we break people off into random duos, right? Two people, we bust them off into breakout rooms, all digital these days. And out of that, they kind of talk about what they're going to achieve in the next 30 days. That's going to move them closer to their next goal. And within that, they then come out of there going, okay, we agree to be accountability partners. And they agree on, okay, I'm going to text you once a day, once a week, whatever. I'm going to phone you, email, whatever it is. So it's an accountability. And, and what we've discovered with that is some of our community now, they attend every month. It's the first Wednesday of every month we do this. And they now have three, four, five accountability partners because they keep meeting people that they think are cool. That's awesome. Yeah. But what, what does it look like? What does an accountability partner look like to you? Or how do you guys do that? Nine years later? Are they five minute calls, fifty minute calls? What what is it? How do you make it work for you, Tom?
1: Sure, yeah, it's about well, uh, it, it. It's a thirty minute phone call, and um, you know we cover uh, wins, uh, losses, ahas, and fixes that are going on in uh in our business and frankly our personal lives, as <laughs> gen as well, of course. But the, you know, the, the paradox of accountability uh, partners, Patrick, I've found is that really you're holding yourself accountable. You just have to, you just have to have another body there to, to bounce things off of and, you know, kind of report to, but ultimately, you know, I always kind of scramble like, oh, geez, you know, my accountability call with Stevens coming up. I better have some cool stuff to talk to him about. (laughs) (laughs) And so so I got to make. Yeah. So I got to make, so I go through like, you know, my calendar and our, uh, our base camp operating system to see what's going on across the company. And I'm like, okay, I got to pick out, you know, three really cool things. And so, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes, uh, a week will go by and it's kind of been a business as usual week, but even those weeks I think are important because, you know, you're not going to achieve success overnight. It's going to be, you know, these small steps and increments of, you know, a week or so is a pretty decent amount of time. So uh, you know, even though I might not have some grandiose, Hey, we just closed this huge deal and made this, you know, fee or great profit split or whatever. Yeah. I might not have that necessarily maybe, but you know, it feels good to at least say, Hey, we just hired a new guy yeah. and, um, you know, we achieved this, uh, KPI performance benchmark that we've been striving for for a while. or You know, just those kinds of smaller things really add up over time.
0: Well, I think that we can't step over that, you know, just shine a light on it. It is incremental steps. It is, you know, the journey of a thousand miles is, you know, the first step, right? It begins mm-hmm. with the first step. And then it's one step after that every day or every moment. And it is a step at a time that we accomplish those big goals. So I love that you do that. Uh, you know, I often have clients that, you know, ask me about coaching versus mentorship and they want to mentor and do you run into that, that question, uh, Tom, Have you, you know, you've talked about some guys that were really important in your life, but were they kind of, you accepted them or you took them on yourself as a mentor. They may not have even held themselves as that. They were just relationship that you followed their lead and they're probably generous with their guidance, but what's your view of a mentor in, or do you have one? And you may not have one.
1: Sure. Yeah. I, I I wouldn't say that those, uh, those, what I call mentors early on in my career, I, I don't think they thought of themselves as mentors. Uh, but they, they certainly did teach me, uh, some great things along the way. And then, you know, when you get into the, you know, the mentors, you know, like a Jim Rohn, that the challenge to succeed, you know, CD set that he's listening to, listen to my car, sure. like, right, well, he's dead. So, <laughs> you know, he's been dead for a while. I think he, he, he died somewhere during the time that i was you know listening to his stuff and then you know darren hardy uh, yeah. of course you know still still going strong but yeah you know i think uh some mentors you know are purposely out there to to be a mentor um others you, you know you kind of make them your mentor <laughs> by continuing to you know, call them up and bug them with questions and this and that so i i, I guess i have both and I'm actually proud to say that I'm a mentor, um, to some entrepreneurs out there, uh, here in the Philadelphia area. And I guess, uh, actually, you know, in other areas as well, as I'm sitting here thinking about, I'll get, you know, calls or emails, uh, from guys along the way, just with a question or, Hey, you know, I ran into this situation. How would you handle it? What do you suggest? So that I, I definitely take a lot of pride in that. And I could see, you know, I don't, I don't know what retirement looks like for you, Patrick, I, you know, as a, as a deal junkie myself, you know, as at 54 years old, I'm like, well, what, what does that even look like retirement? But I guess for me, um, it does look more towards shifting to kind of a mentor mentality. Um, I was actually invited back to my business school to, to teach a course there, which I thought was a blast. I had so much fun doing that. I could see myself transitioning to more of a, you know, kind of a mentor teacher role in the future. So I think, uh, you know, that just helps to pass on the knowledge that I've gained over the years and through my, you know, failures and successes, you know, I I got to put that somewhere. Uh, my son's already told me, he's like, ah, I'm not interested in your business. <laughs> I don't know that I'll be able to impart it on him and my daughter's still a question mark. So we'll see about her. But, uh, but yeah, I think, it, I think it'd be a, a, a lot of fun to go and, you know, mentor, teach, speak, that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. It's funny what you just said about your son. Not, you know, he's gone. Man, I'm not, I'm not interested. It's, it's just a, how many real estate deals come up because of that. You know, you talked about your 83 year old guy that you know with the unit. You know, there's, there's just as good a chance as that. You know, yes, his daughter's involved in it, but there's a lot of those stories out there that I built this for my kids to pass on to my kids and the family. The kids get it after the parent passes on. They go, I want nothing to do with this piece of crap. Uh, you know, I saw them fight and struggle through it all. I don't want to take it on. I'm not interested in being a landlord, uh, sell it, (laughs) you know, get rid of it. And that's it. There's our, there's where opportunities get created because that's right. Well-meaning parents, you know, doing real estate for their kids, the legacy of their kids and the kids go, yeah, no, I have nothing. That's right. This thing, you know, so it's very funny. So when you, uh, when you look at, you know, as we kind of are post COVID and, The world's kind of opened up again and we're doing all the things that we're doing. And when you think about the time through COVID, what changed for your business? Were you, you know, you know, you look at us having this particular podcast, you know, you're in Philadelphia, I'm in Vancouver, we're doing Zoom, a normal thing. I mean, for us, it's been normal for many years, but how did it shape your business in terms of efficiencies or not and or connectivity or not? What was it for you? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah.
1: So I mean at the at the operational level, uh, we thought, and I'll get to that team in a minute, but we thought that, you know, COVID might be an opportunity to 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 be aggressive with our offers on acquiring storage facilities. We thought maybe these moms and pops might be a little concerned about where the world was headed and maybe we could uh get, you know, get a good deal here and there. Um, but that quickly uh flipped about because I think Once we got like maybe a couple, two, three months into COVID, those facility owners saw that their occupancy was still steady. Their rates were still steady. And they were like, no, we're not going to sell for less. In fact, I think we were going to want more. Um, And, uh, you know, COVID uh, really fueled the self-storage industry. It was was a really big uh, demand driver. But as far as our team dynamics and, you know, working through COVID, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we really started relying on zoom. Uh, you know, we were substantially working from home there for a, for a period of time. Um, and it is definitely different. And I think I discovered that I'm, you know, kind of an old school guy in terms of, you know, I want to have meetings in the conference room and I, you know, want to be able to just, you know, pop down the hallway and, and you know, pop into Joe's office or Tim's office or Gretchen and just, you know, have a quick conversation or quick question. Um, but yeah, that, that did substantially change and it was definitely a, a a shift, uh, for me mentally. And again, as a leader, you know, I needed to kind of come around to that. And then, uh, now just to to this day, Patrick, we are, uh, struggling, believe it or not, I don't know, maybe, maybe we should all believe it. Uh, we're struggling to hire people, uh, for in-office jobs. Uh, we've, we've been needing to expand our accounting team. Uh, cause the company's growing and we have an ad out there saying, Hey, you know, it's an, in the office job and our recruiters are re- reporting back to, to Gretchen, our chief of staff and director of operations. And they're saying, yeah, people don't want to come in the office. And so we dialed that down to you know, three days a week in the office and we're still struggling to, to find people. So it's, I, it seems like there's been a big shift. Uh, I don't know, maybe it's permanent for people wanting to, uh, to work outside the office, but that, that's definitely been a big, you know, kind of COVID, you know, post COVID change. And, and I guess this, this old dog needs to learn some new tricks in terms of, uh, you know, managing remote teams.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting because I, you know, there's, there's a fundamental that I've, you know, seen, you know, which is when you look at what's happening, work from home, work from anywhere, you know, first and foremost, you know, when you look at, you know, the talent that, you know, two talent, so I've got teams out of in right across the country as well as uh international team and you know in the Philippines we have a great team and you know ultimately when you look at the talent pool you can draw from literally from across the country it really opens up what you know the opportunities that present themselves that's been my experience with it you know I'm seeing more and more statistically because we do so much research on this particular topic because of how it affects residential real estate and where people want to live and what they want to do in terms of, you know, do they run a rent? Do they want to buy, et cetera. The point is, is that, and as a real estate investor, of course, you know, you can be in one end of the country and be investing in a property at the other end of the country and not Mm -hmm. have to be flying in or anything else. It's very easy to use the technology to do that. So Mm -hmm. my, my own experience with it is, is that I lo- like you, I like to be able to get together with people every so often, but I create circumstances to do that. And, you know, for me to go, let's say, meet with my VP of marketing or my chief growth officer, you know, I'm a five-hour flight. But I do that, right? But I'm, I'm flying from, you know, really one end of the country, one coast to the other almost, to uh, to have those conversations. And, and of course, it's not an efficient use of time either. So there's all these right. hard arguments that I can see why, Administration, because I've heard the same story before. When you look at an administrative role such as accounting, I literally I've got three different accounts because I got different businesses, and and I happen to have I, I got my main guy, but he lives in another city, and I I haven't mm-hmm. literally been in his office for three years. And my bookkeeper, <laughs> I haven't I haven't physically met with her for fifteen years, you know, and so that's right. all that's all technology driven, so. I don't know where, where, you know, I love the technology of it, but I think you have to create the opportunities to be, you know, in the energy of other people.
1: Yeah. So, um, there was an interview I watched recently, uh, it was the CEO of Marcus and Millichap, which is one of the biggest commercial, uh, brokerage firms, uh, I think probably in the US and Canada. Um, and he had a panel, which was a couple of asset managers, but then he also had Larry Summers on there, who used to be the uh secretary of the treasury and uh i think he was president of harvard university and so he's a big time economist guy um but they did talk about the the shift you know what's going to happen with office right so they were talking about that and larry Summers said something interesting he he said that he figured that things were going to settle out where it was going to be a hybrid you know maybe three days a week in the office but this is what he said that i thought was very interesting he said. The people who are just, you know, looking to plot along and just stay in their job and just, you know, do their thing. They're going to be the ones who are going to work from home, you know, spend a little time in the office. The guys that want to be the leaders. And sorry, I'm from the Northeast. When I say guys, it's both guys and girls. Uh, (laughs) The people that go into the office, those are the people who want to be the leaders. They want to be the future leaders of the company. And so you, you want to take notice as to who wants to park it at home. Who wants to come in the office? I thought that was super interesting.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting thought process for sure. I'm looking at it, you know, when I, you know, I'm paying attention to what goes on in the U.S., Canada. I mean, we have rising costs of travel, rising costs of fuel, insurance, all of the stuff. And, you know, when you look at some of our major centers, which we don't have that many, but let's say we use Vancouver, Toronto as an example. And you can easily be commuting an hour one way. And, you know, so the next thing you know, you're spending two hours plus on the road every day. And, you know, people are making lifestyle choices as well, as well as cost choices. And they're going, why would I get in my car to drive an hour to go to a job and then turn around that I don't need to be there to do? And then to turn around and drive another hour home. Those days are gone. And and so it's an interesting I don't know where it's all going to land. I mean, I have a view of it and you hear anecdotally what's going on and Mm -hmm. some data starting to show up around it, but I think people are also just rediscovering what it can be for them, embracing technology and changing the way it is. I mean, now we got this whole, you know, quiet quitting thing going on and not being able to find the people and boomers saying, to hell with it, I'm out. You know, so now it gives even less, you know, fewer people, you know, we look at what's going on economically around the world, I mean, it is really a, a different uh, time. And we don't know what Putin is going to do and, and what's China going to do. And hell, <laughs> you know, we got, you guys got a president, and we got a prime minister, but both need their heads examined. So, right. you know, it, it is an interesting time to say the very, very least. And so what, yeah. all that kind of relates back to, uh, you know, are people really inspired and, you know, are they inspired to think that, life is grand and going to be cool and make an embrace it and take it on or is it shutting people down which i think would probably lead to going nah, nah i'm not into it I'll, I'll work from home i don't know it's it is an interesting kind of time and fascinating actually
1: yeah i agree yeah it, it is an interesting time but i do i i kind of what larry summers said i think resonates with me which is you know the, the guys again sorry guys girls that uh, are looking to achieve or you know get ahead, I think they're going to do what they need to do to to, to do that. And that, if that means they got to be in the office with the leadership team and learning from them and, and being a mentee from those mentors, yeah. Uh, then that that I mean, it's it just it just seems to work better that way.
0: What's it like in the U.S. Tom? Because I know here is that we had government offices shut down, of course, as I'm sure they were in the U.S. But it's actually. The uh, public sector that aren't going back to the office here in Canada, I mean, there are some, but there are many who are not going back. And as they do their surveys of their thousands of uh, public service jobs, uh, many are going, no, I'm not interested in going back to the office. I'll do one day a week. That's the max. And some are going, not at all. And there's some, you know, some variation. But at the end of the day, it's definitely a hybrid in the government space, which leaves empty buildings all over the place. I think, I don't know what that's going to mean in the long run. What is it, what are you finding on your side of the, of the border? Yeah, you know,
1: that's a good question. Uh, I haven't really Not in looked case. into that or yeah, I looked into that kind of data. Um, yeah. but I wouldn't be surprised if it was, uh, if it was very similar.
0: So if somebody's listening to this and is interested because we have a number of real estate investors who are, you know, looking at it, what do you, what do you, what's a kind of a thing to, uh, Avoid what's one you know, what's the kind of a pro and a con of that space called storage? Sure, so uh,
1: you know, self storage, uh, we've talked a lot about the demand drivers. I think there's a lot of those demand drivers are, are here to stay. Uh, I think you know, smaller houses, uh, you know, downsizing, um, that sort of thing. Uh, people, uh, especially millennials, seem to be, you know, the data suggests that they're looking at self storage as. An extension of their overall housing strategy.
0: I was going to say, it says, "Is the a place to live?" It's
1: just- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it does happen from time to time. We do find uh, people living in their storage units. Of course, it's a big no-no, but yeah. So yeah, we're we're super excited about it. Uh, yeah, uh, for forty years, uh, self-storage occupancy rates have meandered gently between eighty and ninety percent. Uh, so that means it's consistent income. Meanwhile, there's all these boom-bust cycles uh, in the overall economy, Um, but uh, the data shows that self-storage is pretty much immune to that. And another data point I'll share is that if you look at uh, the uh, commercial property types, uh, you'll see that uh, as far as uh, delinquency and default on mortgages, self-storage is a, a little bit over 0%. Um, uh, whereas, you know, hotels are probably the biggest and the retail, you know, they have pretty healthy uh default rates. Uh, but self-storage facilities, they just don't go out of business. So uh I think if you're an investor and we're looking at these, you know, recessionary headwinds coming at us, I think self-storage is, is a is a great place to be. It's it's real asset with cash flow, tax advantages, and uh, and growth potential. We also, uh, when we're acquiring a facility, we make sure that we have optionality in our business plan. What I mean by that is you know, we, we do shoot for like a two to three year exit, but if in two to three years, if maybe the value isn't there, you know, there's something going uh, wrong in the macro economy that's suppressing the value of that facility, well, we'll just sit on our double digit cash flow for another couple of years until the market does come back and then, and then we'll have the option to sell it at that time. Uh, So we're, we're really excited about where we are. Uh, Like I mentioned earlier, it's it's easy to buy real estate, but I'm really proud of our operations team. They really kick butt and we had our uh, operations meeting this morning and we're just, you know, we're just hitting on all cylinders as far as tracking our, our KPIs, which we have a whole handful of those that we, we track for each of our facilities on a week to week basis. So uh, I just think that's really where the, the value that we bring to the table at Belrose Storage Group is that that operational savvy for sure.
0: Fantastic. Well, you know, I'm I'm a big fan of the whole self-storage concept. I've not invested in it, but I've threatened too many times and, and I'm not too far away. Uh, so Tom, I want to say thank you for your time. As we wind things down, I always like to have a little bit of fun with my guests, ask some, uh, you know, what we would call rapid fire questions just for, uh, you know, a few, uh, just some, for some additional conversation. Okay. Do you have a favorite quote that you refer to? A favorite quote? Yep.
1: I don't know that I have a, a favorite quote, but I'll, uh, I'll quote Warren Buffett. <laughs> uh, Warren Buffett says risk comes from not knowing what you're doing. <laughs> it sounds almost like a Yogi Berra, uh, kind of yeah. quote, yeah. but, uh, I, I was like that one as, you know, as an investor, uh, to, to think about, Hey, you know you don't know what you're doing, you're, you know, you're putting yourself at risk. So you better get out there and get educated.
0: <laughs> get it figured out. Yeah. That's a good, that's a great, actually, that's a great quote. I've not, that's a, I'm not, I'm not familiar with that one. That's yeah. great. Favorite book, most meaningful, I, and you can't say who, not how. one uh, other than who, not how, what have you got for a book that you either have read and has been impactful or that you even like to, to share? Sure. Uh, so
1: my favorite book has nothing to do with business and leadership, but it also has everything to do uh, with business and and leadership. It's a book, uh, called the last place on earth. And it's a book, uh, written about the race to the South pole. And it occurs in the uh, very beginning of the 1900s. And, uh, the South pole is the last place on earth yet to be explored and, and discovered by people. So, uh, it's a really interesting story because on the one hand, you've got the navy, the British Navy, right? They're very well-trained. They're w- very well-financed. They've got the technology. They've got all these great things going for them. Unfortunately, they're, they also have a big Achilles heel, which is uh, their arrogance. And so sorry to my British friends out there, but <laughs> the British yeah. naval officers were very arrogant. They were like, ah, S- South Pole, no problem. We'll get down there. No, yeah, no problem. And then on the other hand, you've got this Norwegian hippie guy and he goes out and he like assembles this great team. He goes over to Greenland. He spends time hanging out with the Eskimos to see how they survive in cold weather. He learns to drive dog sleds. he learns uh, how to eat uh, how to prepare the pemmican, which is like the milk and the food source that they use. And so um, it's just a really cool story where you've got the you know the well- financed, well-trained but uh, arrogant, uh, British Navy against the hippie guy, and he's got to go out and raise his money because he, he needs money to, to do this expedition. So, uh, it's just a really cool story how it unfolds. And so the Norwegian team, uh, the leadership principles that I learned from them are, you know, you gotta be detailed with your plan. You gotta get the right team together. And when you put that plan together. You know, whether it's a sunny day out on the Antarctic ice shelf where it's a storm, you've got a certain number of miles you got to get through. And whereas the British team, they would look out their tent in the morning and say, oh, well, it's, uh, you know, it looks like a storm's coming. We're going to hunker down here for the day. And then it just throws off their whole plan. And anyway, I'll, you probably can guess how the story ends up. But uh, I, just, I just think it's a great adventure book, uh, yeah. but it's also a great uh, leadership uh, book.
0: Well, yeah, I love it. I love that story. Now I want to, now I'll definitely want to, and it kind of reminded me of the quote that you had, you know, that you just shared because, you know, he went out and prepared and he got educated and he cut his risk, uh, significantly, whereas your British, the British, uh, you know, the British counterparts, if you will, uh, did not. So that's kind of a cool story. Yeah. Kind great of story. It. I've probably read it. I've read it four or five times. It's it's a great yeah, book. That's awesome. Uh, your room, your desk, or your car, your room, your desk, or your car. What do you clean first?
1: Yeah, my room, my room, definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, then my car, then my desk. I should like pan the camera over. You see, I got piles of paper everywhere. I don't have time to go through all that crap.
0: <laughs> oh yeah. Well, it, what is it? What is, what is the, what's this? What's the phrase? The clean desk is the sign of a weird mind or something. I don't remember the exact quote. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Right. It's another, I think it's another thing for entrepreneurs. It's like, More crap you have on your
0: desk, the more of an entrepreneur you are. (laughs) You must be. Exactly. And then um favorite swear word.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Favorite swear word. Oh wow. Uh, are you an F bomber or what do Uh, you think? Yeah, probably. Probably an F bomber. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably probably my favorite one, most impactful for sure. Most impactful. Do you have a... <laughs> and I'm a golfer, so it comes. Out <laughs> yeah.
0: <a> golf. <laughs> oh yeah. So uh, a buddy of mine, uh, a buddy of mine lived on the golf course on the on uh, the tee box of the third hole or something, and everybody calls it golf. He calls it whap fuck." You know, yeah, right. Sitting out having his coffee, and that what do you hear? Whap fuck." You know, that's right. how yeah, <laughs> that's, uh, that's how he referred to golf. Um, yeah. So do you have a favorite tune or favorite tune? Or band
1: oh man uh so i love music uh i mean my my passions outside of business are, are golf and guitar i've been i've played guitar since i was 11 years old so i love well, i love all kinds of music last night uh, i was at home i was playing by les paul and i was playing uh, some kenny chesney uh he's a you know kind of a crossover country yeah. artist yeah uh, so he's uh he's uh he's a uh i'm i'm a big fan of kenny chesney for sure went to see him uh play uh in st louis this past summer uh but yeah zach brown band i'm a, i like those guys so i'm I'm kind of a uh maybe a country guy at heart but
0: right? your music party your music pile so sorry for you guys to answer those questions
1: yeah exactly and then I, I, had the, I had the garage band in high school which was a lot of fun but we played a lot of uh leonard skinnard and fog hat and oh yeah who stuff like that so i love all that too but yeah it is a hard question for me to answer because our very broad very broad uh uh palette when it comes to uh, to music for sure
0: okay android or apple android by far oh geez okay that's good well i'm okay i'm on that side too but you know i <laughs> I, I, I went to apple but i've got people in my life who are just like they're fanatic apples. like Oh, yeah. No, my business partner,
1: Joe, he's fanatical my, about, gosh, about it. It's, exactly. it's like, Yeah, it's like a cult. I'm like,
0: it is, it I is. Try, tried it, and I'm like, I do not like this. Not, I'm not buying into that <laughs> cult. Good for you. If heaven exists, what do you want to hear God say when you get to the gates? Uh, the first tease right over there. First tease right over there. Very good. And uh, final question today, Tom, and thanks again for your time. What are you grateful for? Oh man, I'm grateful for so much. I'm grateful for
1: all the opportunities, uh, you know, here in the business world. Uh, I'm grateful for all the fantastic people uh, I've been able to meet, uh, throughout my life I'm, I'm grateful for a lot. In fact, uh, when I'm, when I'm, when I have a bad day, I go out hiking and while, while I'm hiking, I try to think of all the things that I'm grateful for. And if I hike for an, one hour, two hours, three hours. I never run out of things uh, that sure. I'm grateful for. So yeah. another hard question.
0: They answer. are. They're sometimes hard. Well, a guest I had on some time ago gave me the best answer to that question for me anyways, which is he looked at it. He said, I'm just grateful for all that I have to be grateful for. And, <laughs> and I went, that's a bit of a pop-up, but it really does. <laughs> yeah, it all and that was pretty good. And Any yeah, get, then we get really, really into the details of it. Well, Tom, I'm always grateful for the guests that I have turned up to be on my show and to uh, share their experience and their insights and the lessons of a lot of experience. And uh, thank you for your time. I'm very grateful for your time. And I'm always grateful for my family, my wife, my two Bernese Mountain Dogs that are just a blast and a uh, great life that I've created for my wife and I, or we've created for each other. So Tom, thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you, Patrick. It was great being with you. Thanks for a great conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others, share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at r-e-i-n Canada dot com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick O.